I got kicked out of Trinity's Fantasy Football League last year. It was Nathan's fault. He did it. Nathan, if you're listening to this, we miss you. If you're visiting today, Nathan was one of our founding pastors, and he moved away recently to Ohio. But, but Nathan kicked me out of our Fantasy Football League. See, when you own a fantasy football team, you're kind of like the coach. You make important personnel decisions for your team each week. You ensure the right people are in the right place to ensure the success of your team for that particular week. The problem was, I never even logged in to look at my team. No, actually, it's, it's worse than that. I wasn't even there for the draft party to draft my team. Someone else drafted my team for me. Thanks, Justin, for that. I was a terrible fantasy coach, terrible fantasy leader of my fantasy team, and the fantasy results of my fantasy team were fantastically terrible. I didn't win a game. Good leadership is critical to the success of any organization, even fantasaical ones, okay? So how much more true is that in the body of Christ then? Well, it's infinitely more important than in fantasy sports, obviously. Last week, we jumped into a quick three-part series on the sort of skeletal structures of the church, the way that God has designed it. If the church body were a tent, these would be the three stakes that hold it up. Last week, we took a close look at 1 Timothy 3, and we went into some detail about the impossibly high standard that God has for the leaders of his church, for the pastors, or for the elders. That's because God understands better than any of us that good leadership matters immensely. Sometimes we can sensationalize leadership, thinking that there's something, that they are something that they're actually not. For instance, our team met this past Wednesday night. So you can picture bloodshot eyes, tired feet, weary souls, guys with sin, guys with burdens, even though very often you'll see sort of smiles poking through the frustration of their lives because of their joy in Jesus. But one pastor is worrying about a, a broken down car that's going to cost thousands. Another is recovering from strep. Another shows up late because of physical therapy to repair a broken joint. I mean, these dudes, are, they're just real dudes. Real broken dudes that have real love for you. We have so much to be thankful for in the pastors that God has given to us here at Trinity. They love you. They want you to flourish physically and spiritually, and they're giving their lives to that. God has gifted us with some really godly men. We have a lot to be thankful for. And thankfully, we have a senior shepherd who isn't broken, who isn't sinful, who hasn't fallen short even a little bit. Jesus is Trinity's true senior pastor. And as his under-shepherds, we take our orders from him. We do what he's asked us to do. In fact, if you take a look down at 1 Timothy 3, which is where we've been camping out for the last couple of weeks, you're going to see why and how we take our orders from God. If you look at verses 14 and 15, and if you're new to the Bible this morning, no problem. The big numbers on your page there, those are the chapter numbers, and the little numbers there, those are the verse numbers. And so you can look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And Paul comes right out here, and he says why he's writing this letter to Timothy on God's behalf. Verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I do delay, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So this is the reason why we've been in 1 Timothy last week and this week, and why we're continuing on in this study, because this is where God teaches us how to live together as the church. This is where he teaches us how to live together as the church. God saved the church, and he has a particular way that he wants the church to operate and function, not just as individuals, but together corporately as a church body. I mean, his son was slaughtered so that he could ransom us, so that he could buy us back from slavery, brokenness, and sin. Do you think he just bought the church with the death and blood of his son and said, okay, glad that's done. Now you can just go on and do whatever you want. No. Do you know what he did? He gave us books like 1 Timothy to help us establish leadership in the church because he intends for his church that he purchased to be led and cared for and served in a particular way and to go in a particular direction. So when we come to texts like this about leadership in the Bible, some of us can tend to check out. Like, that's for the leaders. Good for them. Let them learn from that. But can I encourage you to plug in extra hard, whatever plugging in extra hard looks like. He cares. God cares about the church. Jesus loves the church, and so should we. Jesus cares about how we should operate, and so should we. So, and still kind of reviewing from last week a little bit here, in order for Trinity to run on full cylinders, we need gifted, called, and qualified men to lead the church. They're called pastors. And today we continue the study. The second stake in the tent, as it were, the deacons. So let's get to discussing how God has called all of us, pastors, deacons, and congregation, to work together for good. He's providentially piecing us together like a puzzle so that we might display his glory by doing gospel good to each other, to Abington, and to the whole world. That's kind of like the big idea for these three weeks, the one idea that sort of encapsulates where we're headed last week, this week, and then next week. And so today, much like last week, we're going to ask and answer three basic questions about deacons. What are deacons? Who are they supposed to be? And then how do they relate to or how do they differ from the pastors? So this morning, I'd like to start by sort of throwing out the originating scenario for where deacons even came from. I mean, we don't use the term deacon every single day. So it may sound odd or a little bit mystical to you to hear that term deacon. Or maybe there's some baggage tied up in your previous experiences with with churches or with, with deacon boards. In any case... We want to see what our senior shepherd, what what vision he has cast about how to organize the church. And godly deacons are a critical piece of how God has called us to organize. So if you wouldn't mind, would you you keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 3, and then maybe pop back to Acts 6. If somebody, I didn't write this down, I should have. If somebody's got one of those pew-back Bibles, can you holler out what page it's on, just in case anybody here isn't familiar with the Christian Bible. Acts chapter 6. Say it again. 914. So if you want to turn to page 914, that's where we're going to be for just a second. And so this morning, first, let's let's answer the question about what deacons do. Here in Acts 6, we find the original impetus for the office of deacon. 
And I'm going to read the first seven verses there of Acts chapter 6. Starting at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you the seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose these seven men. And then we'll skip to verse 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So notice first here, there's a problem introduced. And the problem is this. There's a threat to the unity and joy of the church. A threat to the unity and the joy of the church. So we kind of dropped into Acts 6 here. We dropped into this scene of the early church. But can I just quickly tell you about what was happening before this? There was much joy in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a party because they were all in unison pursuing the Jesus way. They were constantly together, praying and eating together, enjoying one another's company. They were selling all their stuff to make money to give to people who needed it more than they did. There was just this palpable, redemptive energy that was all over the city of Jerusalem. But in Acts 6 here, we get the details of an interruption to that momentum and joy that they were experiencing. So look at there at verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists here is a reference to the Greek folks in the Jerusalem church. Uh, so you might know that the early church would have been mostly made up of Jews, ethnic Jews, but Jews nonetheless. And these Greeks were saying, look, hold up, the Greek widows, they're not being cared for adequately. The Jewish ones are, the Greek ones aren't. So the apostles, they don't argue at all. They acknowledge that there is a problem. There's no dispute. I'm sure it wasn't an intentional oversight here. It's just a reflection of the fact that the apostles had too much to do and they couldn't do it all. So you see, as the church in Jerusalem grew, the apostles found themselves unable to carry the burden of both theological and practical leadership. Their primary role was the proclamation of the gospel. That was what the apostles were tasked with doing. But as they were faithfully proclaiming the gospel, demonstrating it came into peril because they couldn't both proclaim it and demonstrate it adequately. But the church is called to do both, to proclaim it and to demonstrate it. So they called this meeting to solve this conundrum. How are we going to do both well? Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, we can't give up proclamation to do demonstration. And yet, we can't leave the gospel undemonstrated. That won't work either. We have to find a way to demonstrate the love of Christ in meaningful, practical ways. Like, in this text, caring for widows. So that little phrase there, if you take a look at the end of verse 2, 
it says to serve tables, that's actually a reflection of one Greek word. So if, if you're new to the Bible, Greek is the original language that the Bible was written in. Sometimes it's helpful to understand the original meaning of some of the words, particular words or phrases, and I think this is one of those times. To serve tables is one Greek word. Diakonein is how you say it. Sounds a little bit like deacon, doesn't it? So originally, a deacon was someone who would serve tables, a waiter. But the word gradually began to morph into a broader meaning, uh, describing general acts of practical service, not just waiting on tables. You didn't know you were going to get a history lesson this morning too, did you? Lucky you. So the apostles were either going to have to give up preaching to serve the more practical needs, or they were going to need to delegate this really practical, special care. And that's the solution to the problem. Delegate practical care to qualified saints. So together, they decided to lighten their load by delegating important ministry tasks to proven men. Now, the word deacon, to be fair, is not actually used. The noun form of the word deacon is not used here. But much of the scholarship available on this topic agrees that this was sort of the inception of the office of deacon. It's what led to the first Timothy 3 character qualities that Mel read for us a couple of minutes ago. Introducing this official church role would allow the apostles to be able to devote themselves to the tasks we talked about last weekend. And if you want to know what pastors are specifically called to do, you can, just, you can catch that sermon on the podcast and listen to that a brief description of 1 Timothy 3, the first uh, seven verses there. But, but these apostles, they simply couldn't do both. They p- couldn't proclaim and demonstrate. So they find seven qualified men in verse 5, and then they make it official in verse 6, and then they send them on their way to serve. And what's the result? An acceleration of the mission. Acceleration of mission. Look what happened there in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So when you hear the word deacon, you should think servant. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word servant, but I hope you don't sort of instinctually denigrate that term. It's beautiful. And this role, this role of servant, of deacon, is an accelerant of Jesus' big, beautiful mission right here at Trinity and all the way around the world. Adding deacons into our mix here at Trinity should be like throwing fuel, throwing gasoline onto a fire. It should turn up the heat of our mission to make it more vibrant, more compelling, even more fruitful. And I can't wait to introduce the office of deacon here because of these things. It's going to be a wonderful thing. We need deacons who apply themselves to mercy ministry. We need deacons who apply themselves to the practical aspects of ministry who throw themselves into the mission that God has given us here in Abington. So in the next few months, maybe six or eight months or so, we're going to be introducing some areas of service for which deacon leadership is necessary. Deacons will be our leading servants. That's what they are, leading servants, who will organize and mobilize teams of us to light the fires of mission in areas like hospitality, mercy, Maybe more practically, like our facility here. We have other ideas too. Those are just some. But these deacons will help demonstrate the gospel so that the pastors can give themselves fully to prayer and proclaiming the gospel. 
So that's what the deacons do. So let's talk for just a moment here about how deacons differ from pastors. Maybe some of you come from backgrounds where deacons operated like pastors, or you weren't sure about what the difference is between a deacon and a pastor or a deacon and an elder. Well, clearly, deacons have a critical role in the life and health of the church body. But their role is different from that of the pastors. The similarities of the qualifications for deacons and pastors. There you go. You heard it here first. Uh, The similarities in 1 Timothy 3 are striking, but there are some distinctions. Perhaps the most notable distinction between pastors and deacons is that deacons do not need to be able to teach. That's missing from the list. Deacons are called to hold to the faith, but they are not called to teach it in any kind of official capacity. But like pastors, deacons must manage their house and children well. You can see that in verse 12. But when referring to deacons, Paul excludes the section where he compares managing one's household to taking care of the church. You see that in verse 5. And the reason for this omission is likely due to the fact that deacons are not given a ruling or a leading position of oversight over the entire church. It's the way God set it up. That function belongs to the pastoral office. So in the end, it seems best to view deacons as servants who reduce the friction of the practical aspects of ministry to allow the gears of mission to roll forward. They're friction reducers. And just like the apostles delegated administrative responsibilities to those seven men in Acts 6, so the pastors are to delegate certain responsibilities to the deacons so that they can be free to focus on their calling. I don't know about you, maybe your neck stiffens a little bit at this, like the deacons do the pastor's bidding. But I I do want to say this. If, If our pastors are operating in a way that is consistent with and, a, and with the posture that we talked about last week from the first half of 1 Timothy 3, then the missional handoffs between these two groups of people should be really beautiful, and they should propel the mission forward. The deacons can assume a posture of support without an attitude of playing second fiddle to the pastors. Instead, they should remember that they are gifts to Jesus' church. They are Jesus' gifts to us given by the Spirit for our common good. And just as a quick caveat here, just because the deacons are the primary mission friction reducers and missional fire starters doesn't mean that pastors never get their hands dirty to serve. It does not mean that. It must not mean that. And even though the deacons are not the congregation's spiritual leaders, their character is still of utmost importance which is why deacons should be examined and held to the biblical qualifications that we saw here in 1 Timothy 3. So let's finish with that this morning briefly. Who the deacons are. This is really important, really important. The main difference between a pastor and a deacon is a difference of gifting and calling, not character. Not character. A deacon does not have a lesser role than a pastor. It's just a different calling. The only passage that mentions the character qualifications for deacon is in 1 Timothy 3. And it's here we see at least three things, if we're sort of encapsulating all of these descriptions. These three things must be categorically true about the deacons that we have here at Trinity. And you're going to have a role 
in bringing them on to the team here. First, deacons are those of conspicuous godliness. They must be those of conspicuous godliness. I mentioned a minute ago that the overlap in qualifications for deacons and pastors is pretty significant. The emphasis here is still very much on the character of these people, not on their administrative skills or their labor skills or whatever. It's character. It matters a lot. You see that you see that in the requirement to be respectable, dignified is what Paul calls it there in verse 8, not double-tongued or else they couldn't be trusted. Deacons must be trustworthy. There must be no addictions, no greed in the heart of our deacons. Much like pastors, deacons must manage their houses well and be faithful to their wives and kids. So they must be conspicuously godly. They also must be those of sound doctrine. You can see that in verse 9. They must hold to the mystery of the faith. So pastors are tasked with overseeing the, te- the, the, the teaching. But deacons still have to hold to the faith and the right doctrine because in their ministry, no doubt, they're going to have to give comfort in the midst of some really challenging situations. All the words they speak must be in keeping with the gospel. They have to be those of sound doctrine. And then third, deacons are those who love serving. Service is the very essence of the word, role, and office of deacon. Being a deacon is not just a position. It's not just an office in the church. It's far more than that. It's actually a calling, and it's a high calling. It's not a stepping stone to being a pastor. Deacons are deacons because they have a heart to serve and because they're called by God to serve. And here's how you'll know a godly deacon when you see one. They'll be the godly people who always want to help when the people of God are hurting. They always want to help when the people of God are hurting. Or they'll instinctually, humbly, and mercifully meet the needs that they see around them. We already noted that the most conspicuous distinction between pastors and deacons is that they have the ability to teach. But there's one other difference that I'd like to lob into the ring today. It services there in verse 11. It says, their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Now, it may not readily come to the surface that this is controversial, but it, but it actually is, a little bit, at least. So here's the question. Should women be deacons? So I'm going to show you how and why this is a little bit controversial, that little phrase there, their wives, likewise, must be dignified. And at the same time, I'm going to throw all my cards out on the table right away here about Trinity's official position on women deacons. At Trinity, we hold that women can and should serve in the office of deacon. And we believe this position honors the teaching of the New Testament as a whole. And here's briefly why we think that. First, let me say this. Uh, The Bible isn't overly clear on this matter, so we want to be careful not to be overly dogmatic, and we want to show plenty of charity to those who disagree. And just so you know, there are plenty of people that, uh, that land in our camp or we land in their camp. There's a lot of safety and security in the position that we hold here. But three quick points on why we plan to nominate female deacons, not female pastors, female deacons. First, is Phoebe the deacon. First, Romans 16.1 uses this word, diakonos. It sounds a little bit like deacon, right? Diakonos is the Greek word. It uses that word to describe a woman named Phoebe. It uses the word deacon to describe Phoebe. It says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or a deacon of the church of Centrea. 
So Bible scholars are divided over whether or not we should see Phoebe as an official deaconess, like the office in a church, or just a servant, like a role of a servant in a church. Was she a deacon or was she just somebody who liked to serve? They differ over that. But the Greek phraseology Paul uses here is used consistently throughout the New Testament to identify a person's performance in an office. So we think there's actually good reason to believe that Phoebe was a deacon and not just a servant. Still, you probably know this, it wouldn't be wise for us to throw all of our eggs in the, in the basket of one verse, to make a conclusive argument for female deacons from only here. So to answer the question of whether women can be deacons, we should take into account the broader teaching of the New Testament concerning men's and women's roles in the church, especially 1 Timothy 3, where we've been camping out for these two weeks. Here in 1 Timothy 3, we can posit a few safe conclusions, I think. So first, woman, not wife, as the translation in 1 Timothy 3.11. Now there's no small de debate about the translation of that word wives there in, in verse 11. And not to be too geeky again for us for like the fourth time this morning, but the Greek there should be rendered either wife, could be rendered either wife or woman. The word wife there, uh, wives there could be rendered wife or woman. We won't get into the whole argument today, but Trinity's position is the best translation would actually be rendered woman, not wife. Now, maybe you're like, okay, so what's the big deal? What does it matter which way that it's translated? Well, here are briefly the implications of that claim. Two quick things, too, caveats that aren't in my manuscript, which should make all of us nervous. Number one, um, Brandon Zerlip, a few weeks ago, he gave a little talk on how and why we can trust the, the New Testament. So if you're, or really the whole Bible, the whole canon. So if you're a little bit concerned about us like playing fast and loose with the word wife or woman here, I would encourage you to go onto our website and find the talk that he gave a few weeks ago. It should really root your trust uh, in the word of God that we have. There's just a few debates about a very few verses and a very few words, which could go one of two ways. Um, so please don't let this sort of take, take your feet out from under you. And second, if you're new to Christianity and you hear all this stuff about roles of men and women, men and women and, and what they're allowed to do or what they're not allowed to do, it may sound strange and antiquated to you. All of this really is rooted in creation itself. And there is a lot to be said about this, but it's not just these, these random rules that God put into the church. It actually finds its roots in the very way in the fabric that God created the universe with. And I'd love to go offline with you and talk about that. I'm sure sometime we'll get to that and sort of where all this is coming from. But it's not just the superficial thing. It's actually rooted in a really kind, good gift that God has given to us in marriage and the marriage especially between Jesus and his church. We'll get to that another time. But wanted to give those two quick caveats. Go listen to Brandon's talk and then just know that this is coming from somewhere deep uh, in our history as a people. And we can get to that another time. So, boy, where was I? Um, so if here in verse 11 the word is translated women, it actually paves the way for female deacons. And here's why, okay? Right in the middle of the qualifications for deacons is verse 11, which reads, the wives, or how we understand it, the women, likewise, and likewise sort of makes it sound like it's, he's transitioning to another office here, another office is being introduced. The wives or women, likewise, must be worthy of respect, and then so on. 
Then Paul goes right back to describing deacons. So some take this to be referring to qualifications for deacons' wives. In other words, a deacon candidate can be disqualified based on the character of his wife. However, Paul doesn't use a possessive pronoun here, if you look closely there, when describing these women. He doesn't use the term their wives. He just says the wives or the women. And if there were qualifications for deacons' wives, then why are there no qualifications for pastors' wives? Since pastor is the highest office in the church, it would be strange for God to require something of deacons' wives that he does not require for pastors' wives. So surely, if a deacon can be kept out of diaconal ministry because of the behavior of his wife, then a pastor should be kept from his work based on those same reasons. So it would seem that what's happening in this passage is that these women, though maybe even the wives of deacons, were being screened and held to a standard of character because they were doing their own separate deacon work. So, the biblical qualifications for pastoral ministry are reserved for men, while the qualifications for deacons can be both men and women. The third argument is church history. This is the least persuasive of all the arguments. It's probably the one where your eyes are going to gloss over the most. But it is instructive to note that the earliest churches had no problem with appointing female deacons. One church historian says this, it is indisputable that an order of deaconesses did quickly arise in the church. John Chrysostom, he was one of the ancient dominant church fathers of the fourth century. He understood 1 Timothy 3, 11 to be referring to those who hold the rank of deaconess. And this is especially striking because in cultures which were strongly patriarchal, the early church fathers saw the uh, the appointment of deaconesses neither as a threat to male headship nor as an affront to the scriptures. And one pastor said this. This kind of sums it all up, and I agree. His name is Philip Riken. He pastors in the, uh, in the city. He said this with regard to female deacons. He used to pastor in the city. I think he's moved. Uh, the ministry of such women is vital to the health of the church. If the problem with feminist theology has been its failure to submit to the divine order, the traditional church, that might be us, the traditional church has often failed to employ the gifts of women to their full biblical extent. We don't want to be guilty of this. Within the safety of the bounds of Scripture, we want to put our women in position to flourish. And we're committed to that here at Trinity. So in light of the biblical evidence and the historical evidence, it is our conviction that the church is to be led by biblically qualified male pastors who appoint both male and female deacons to assist with the many practical areas of the ministry. Women can and should serve as deacons under the oversight of a plurality of pastors. This has been heavy and heady, but there's hope here too in this this little text of qualifications that God has given to us through Paul. Thanks for hanging in there. What is God saying about you in these few little verses tucked away in 1 Timothy 3? What's he saying about you by introducing the office of deacon to the church? He's saying that he wants his hands and feet caring for his people and the world, people like you. Today's lesson on deacons is an explicit demonstration of God's care for you as an individual. Trinity, God is wrapping his arms around us by giving us an office like that of the deacon. It's a warm and meaningful embrace from your Savior this morning. He wants his people shepherded 
That's why we have pastors. But he wants his people cared for. That's why we have deacons. Deacons are a real-life, real-time demonstration of God's love for his bride, the church. And if that were not enough, as we wrap today, I want to plant a really vivid image in your minds, in our souls, that I hope bears fruit in us. Think back to that first Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples were up in that room getting ready to celebrate Passover through eating a tasty meal and remembering God's kind deliverance for that first Passover. If you know anything about that day, it was a long and dusty day for those men. Everyone's weary. Everyone's probably a little sweaty. Multiply, multiply that by 13 grown men and you've got a recipe for stank, all right? Everyone's ready to sit and eat and be renewed and refueled. But there's a catch. There's an obstacle to that. You see, when these men arrived at this home, it would have been customary for a host to do the practical, dirty, but critical task of washing the guest's feet, especially right before eating together. So many ancient civilizations, this isn't just a biblical practice, many civilizations embraced this custom of foot washing because sandals were the chief footwear of the time. And there weren't paved streets. So someone, a servant, would get a basin and fill it up with water and use a towel to wash everyone's feet. But when the disciples arrived to this house, for whatever reason, there, there was no servant present. Just the disciples and Jesus. So the question, who's going to do it, just kind of hung in the room like a thick fog. Cue the awkward glances, the innocent stalling, the nervous avoidance of eye contact, the scuffing of the carpet. This is the stuff for servants, not the closest friends of the creator of the universe. Who's it going to be? Johnny? Pete? Matt? In this awkward moment, a most surprising development begins to unfold. Jesus, the creator of every single thing, takes off his outer robe, and all he had left on was the simple garb of a servant. He grabs a basin and a towel and gets down onto his knees. And one by one, he carefully washes these dirty, dirty feet. Jesus was the first and best deacon the first true servant of humanity, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom payment for all of us in here. This morning, let's close by celebrating this servant who didn't count his own life dear to himself, but he gave it up for us. He served us. I'm praying that God raises up a whole host of men and women here who don't count their lives dear to themselves but give themselves up for the good of this body, for the good of Abington, for the good of the world, and for the fame of his glory. Would you pray that God would raise up those kind of people here? God, thank you so much for gifting us with this office. And we feel and sense your love this morning, that you would be so kind as to gift men and women by your spirit, a spiritual gift to our church, to love on us, to care for us, to serve us, to help meet our needs. 
We are undeserving of this grace and mercy, but we are so thankful for it. I pray that you would raise up among us men and women who will serve the body of Christ in this office of deacon. We ask all of this for the good of Trinity. In Jesus' name, amen.